Welcome to the Been There, Got Out podcast. I'm Lisa, a state certified domestic violence advocate and veteran of more than eight years in the trenches of the legal system, the last five successfully representing myself. And I'm Chris. I'm a certified high conflict divorce coach. And between the two of us, we have all this knowledge and experience that we never wanted. But now we can put it to great use, providing expert guidance to people in high conflict divorce and custody situations so you have the best chance in court and beyond. Having the right support from people who get it is so critical to getting you and your children through it as unscathed as possible. And that's exactly what we do through our interviews with experts and other content right here on this podcast. So let's get to it. In this episode of the Been There Got Out podcast, we welcome back our friend, Canadian therapist, author, narcissistic abuse expert, and TikTok superstar, Marnie Grunman, who speaks about why certain kids growing up with a narcissistic parent refuse to talk and how you can help them develop critical thinking skills as well as a voice. We also get into the concept of how to reconnect with kids, even if they are adults who have been groomed to turn against a protective parent and why it is so important to make sure your children are allowed to feel even the bad experiences. Take it away, Lisa. Hi, everyone. It's Lisa from Been There, Got Out. And this is just a tech test, even though we have only two minutes-ish before we go live with Marnie Grundman. I want to make positive. There she is. All right, Marnie, I'm inviting you. I'm so excited for this interview, especially because we've been getting loads of questions that I think she's one of the best people to answer. Okay. Hi, Hi Marnie. That works? Yay. <laughs> okay. So we're going to go, we're going to, you know, maybe we should just do, maybe we should just like chat about fashion for two minutes or so. I know. I'm loving this uh, jacket that you have on. I know. Well, it's very for you, I would see, I'm usually like a vibe. boot. I love boots. I love funky boots ever since I was a teenager. Oh, I don't have the ones I just made recently behind me, and I don't want to get off camera and go find them. But anyway, so I'm more of like a shoes, boots person yep. with mini skirts. Yep. I don't really have like the upper stuff. It's usually like look down. But you always come on camera, and you're like this incredible like shirts Thank and dresses. You. And I saw your video with the pink sequins and the butterfly <laughs> bralette that you repurposed, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to find something like. I love fashion. I have to find statement, something that makes a statement. I, have, I usually I have my little. That. that is so my jam right there. So. Thank you. Right yeah, now. I love this jacket. Thanks. Yeah, the ne the necklace is an octopus. I usually have like my favorite little eye on. Yeah. But um, but I, you know, I have like I love jewelry. I used to make jewelry. I didn't make this, but I feel like you know the brand thing, the eyeball or the starburst. That's what I usually wear. But I love like outside of business wearing all kinds of funky stuff and let's see what you have i see floral i just have a, I have a dress on oh so, wow and and normally i wear this with like the ankle cowboy boots it's super cute yeah. it's one of my favorites i love I, cowboy boots this is my too. old reliable <laughs> really dress. oh my god yeah. your closet was must be amazing it's a little, little insane i might have a problem i might need help <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's like a safe thing to play with. Yeah. Love, yeah. love the fashion thing. All right. Well, look at that. We made it to six o'clock yep. chatting about other things, so we didn't even have to do a tech test. So, Marnie, this is Marnie Brunman, tonight's guest. We've done collabs together. Like I started saying when we first came on, I have really been looking forward to this for a number of reasons. Number one, I love to see you. Number two, you always glam up my screen, and now you inspire me to dress up a little more. Um, and number three, you, you're an expert in so many ways about things that really matter to our community. Yeah. Um, not just as someone who's been involved in toxic romantic relationships, but coming from, I don't know if I should say, narcissistic family of origin. Yeah. And many, many of our clients are dealing with those same issues. And... Um, you know, our whole idea of been there, got out, like that's you. You've been there. You have that radical empathy as well as all this wisdom and knowledge and experience that you can share from various perspectives. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. But before I keep going on and talking, can you officially introduce yourself? 
So my name is Marnie Grunman. I am a survivor of a narcissistic family system. My mother is a, she's still alive, so she's a sociopath and a narcissist. I come from a background of all sorts of abuses that went on within the family unit. At 13, um, running for survival, I ended up living on the streets and I raised myself from that point on. I kind of was always raising myself. And of course, along the way, as we do what we know, I ended up in relationships, um, some that were physically violent and others that were emotionally violent, and eventually started to, you know, figure it out and get help for myself. And as my life has gone on, I wrote a book about my story, which led me into a brand new career. Hold um, it up. Um, Hold it up, Mari. Is it behind you? <laughs> which has been uh, 12 years now. And so I advocate for um, kids who end up on the streets in terms of destigmatizing the reasons that children end up in that situation. And I work in the healing of adult survivors of child abuse, most specifically connected to narcissistic family systems. So that's the bulk of what I do. And I love my job. I bet. I bet. I mean, and, and I must, it must be so extraordinarily rewarding. That's how our job is. I feel like, don't you feel like you were made for this? I do, which is, well, I kind of was. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know and so, in so many ways, um, I never knew that, like, I never saw that this is, I've been a visual artist for 30 years. I've been a sculptor for 30 years. I, I never saw that. Myself, right? Yeah, no one. Oh, I still and I still have involvement in the arts community. So this is not something that I ever thought I would be doing. It's just what it grew into. And I know I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, well, I, thank you so much for talking with me now and for having spoken to me in the past and also just giving me tips and ideas of things that we can use for our clients and for even them to know that um, not just our clients, but this entire community know that you're out there as a resource. And as you know, just the other day, I, I love the way you approach things. Um, critical thinking, especially as an educator, is so important. And I think you're one of those people that's not, afra not afraid to make us learn to question our beliefs and our judgments, which we should constantly be doing. So I, I really appreciate that. And thank you for always putting it out there, even when it's unpopular with certain people <laughs> you know that comes you know what though it's an interesting thing because from being that really quiet terrified child right to the adult that's like well I, i'm this is how i think and feel and not everybody's gonna love me and that's okay as long as i like what i'm doing and i i believe in what i'm doing it's okay so this is actually like being um evidence of what healing becomes and what it can become because if somebody told me i'd be here now like talking like this or you know public speaking or anything i'd be like are you kidding i'm terrified and petrified and it's so different how how we open up and grow our own confidence through figuring out that there was nothing wrong with us in the first place that what was done to us wasn't our fault and to cut ourselves some slack and some self-forgiveness and just constantly be looking for ways to improve on on what we already bring to the table so i'm just i'm i feel really blessed and lucky and also i want to recognize that it's a process and let people know that there was a time where this would not be happening where i didn't even tell anybody that i lived on the streets as a kid because I was afraid that they would see me as damaged goods, right? So it's a process. Right, and you, you know, you mentioned going onto the streets to live at 13, but I don't I remember you saying you first did it when you were five? Yes, so my mother dropped me out of a two-story window and the result was I walked away with two broken arms. I clearly wasn't meant to walk away from that. And right around that time, I ended up living with my grandparents and that household was abusive as well. I wanna be careful with trigger warnings, right? Um, so trigger warning, but that house was also quite abusive. There was incest involved in that house. And I began running away at that age, looking for my biological father actually, who was not on the scene at that point in time. And that transitioned into me just running away period, because eventually that was in Montreal. Eventually we moved to the States and I kept on running whenever I had like too much stuff going on, particularly connected to my mother. 
You know, you, that's like an interesting um, lead into the topic that I want to talk about today. And I had mentioned to you when I emailed you ahead of time that I know we originally said, let's talk about EMDR and some other trauma therapies, and maybe we'll get to that. But this is more important at the moment because in our legal abuse support group that meets weekly, we don't just talk about stuff with courts and strategies. We talk about the bigger issues with how is my child going to be okay growing up in the system with a really toxic parent. That's the most heartbreaking um, thing that our people go through and, and the fear and just you know, how can I protect them? How can I protect myself? Are they going to be okay? Oh, what do I do if they're turning against me? So one of the things that keeps coming up, and especially did this past week, which made me remember a lot from what I witnessed in the past, was that somebody asked a question about how, um, let's just say she's in the middle of a custody evaluation, and her child has a therapist and a guardian ad litem. So there's adults that this child can speak to about, his experience, but he will not tell these professionals. And she is beside herself saying, he tells me, the protective parent, but he won't tell the professionals who can help him, and I have my hands tied because if I say something, I'm going to look like I'm making it up. If I tell him, I, I'm stuck, like why won't he talk? So I have my own ideas, but I thought, I've seen this in kids. I've seen it in teenagers um, of narcissistic mothers in particular, um, even though this case is a little different, where they, they shut down. They won't talk. So I, I would love to hear what you have to say about this. So I think there's a few reasons for this. Uh, the number one reason is the abusive parent is threatening them right behind the scenes. And they're carrying that very heavily. And they may be threatening them in a way of, don't you do that, or, you know, da-da-da. Or they might be threatening them in a way of, you know, if you want to see mommy or daddy, like, and you say something, you we're never going to see each other again. So we don't really have a way of knowing um, even though this child sounds like they're very communicative with their parent, doesn't mean that they're telling their parent everything that's happening that's creating that situation. The other moving piece of that is that, um, especially with the guardian ad litems and the training that they may or may not have, that can be problematic right there. So the, I feel like the best, because sometimes, you know, the training that they have and the way that they speak to children, um, it, it, it isn't through enough experience to know that the language that they're using might keep them aligned with the very victim, with the victimizers, right? And that's a common mistake. Educators make it, police, police uh, law enforcement make that mistake, um, judges make that mistake, medical professionals, they all make that mistake, like if they don't have the right kind of training. And with the therapist, that could be happening as well. And it's really important for this mama or this dad to check in with that therapist and kind of ask them what their approach is and making sure that they're approaching it of, you know, um, sympathizing with that child and saying, you know, um, you're afraid to tell me. And, you know, um, I remember when I was little, I was afraid to speak up too, or sharing some sort of experience that grounds you and aligns you with that child. Because sometimes what the therapist and a lot of times what the, the guardian litem will do is like, you know, your parents just want the best for you. Well, mm. when you have an, a parent who's abusing you and as a child you hear that and you, and, and you know that's not true, what the message sent there for that child is, oh, so you're on the side of my parents. You can tell me till the cows come home that you aren't going to tell them anything and I'm not going to get in trouble. But you just told me they want the best for me. You just lied to me. And now you told me you're on their side. That's how a child's going to internalize that. For a client who's having a difficult time because that child is disclosing information, it's not a bad idea and I think it's safe and you know better on this because I don't work in the court system in this way, to say to that child, is there any reason why you aren't able to talk to so-and-so the way you're able to talk to me? Mm, that's a great question. I think that's a great question, and that's not coaching. That's just asking the child, how do you feel? Yeah, yeah. how do you feel? Is there a reason? Do you trust them? Do you like them? Um, is there something happening that maybe we haven't really talked about yet? Is there something that's keeping you from doing that? Are you afraid that something bad will happen? You know, things like that. So those aren't leading questions. They're questions designed to 
open up that child so then that parent can go to the therapist and say, listen, this is, this is what is going on here, maybe shifting gears. But it's also, I don't know, I mean, I know the, the guardian ad litems are court appointed, correct? Sometimes. A lot of times people have to pay to hire them and they can choose. But you're making me think of something because I interviewed a guardian ad litem who's also a custody evaluator and psychologist with a background in law enforcement and also trained in multicultural studies and like a whole bunch of other stuff. His name is Dr. Mark Singer. And I'm putting together a blog based on a snippet of our conversation. But he was saying that one thing that a lot of these evaluators don't realize is even the way that they dress can be intimidated. He said, think about when your child goes to the doctor and they wear the white coat. If they come talk to you, it's, it's scary. Or like the way people dress where it's going to make your child think of court or authority, like things that, that they wear, that people wear, and we just talked yeah. about fashion, makes such an impression, especially on a child. So an evaluator should really consider what they look like mm -hmm. and their the physical space between them and a child. I've interviewed attorneys for children who are lawyers, and one of them in particular I'm thinking of, um, Dr. Jude Law, was saying that he, when he um, is an attorney for the child, he's like a really big guy, and he said, I always try to get on the floor yeah. with them. That's my favorite. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's the same thing. It's like you need to physically come to their level to make them more comfortable. Yeah, and even better if you can somehow be in a lower position than the child. So you're, you know, underneath them a little bit. And they're, wow. it, it kind of gives that feeling of, you know, you're giving them the power. Remember, these kids have no power. They have no control. And so if you can find ways that allow them to know that they are in control, some of the lack of sharing might be a, a mechanism for them to keep control. So sometimes people need permission. It's okay if you don't want to tell me that today. I understand this is your decision. You know, this is your, this is your show. This is not mine. So however you want to do this, this is okay with me right. because these kids have no control. So anytime you can find a way that, that makes them feel empowered, you're going to be able to connect with them at a deeper level because you're building trust. You're not trying to take things over. You're not trying to take things away from them. You're trying to help them and you're meeting them where they are instead of where you want them to be. Yeah. And also so much with the court process, family court where kids are pushed into these situations. And I'm thinking as well um, where they can't, you know, they, they don't have control. They have to do the visitation no matter what. Yeah. A lot of times it's traumatic and they're kicking and screaming and nobody can make it stop. So I, I love the suggestions you have about making them feel like they do have some control over at least what comes out of their mouth. And I think it would must be so disarming. I think if someone said that to me as an adult, it's like, like I don't have to feel forced to perform for, um, for somebody. Yeah. And also if the child's old enough to write, I feel like you're having a hard time maybe expressing yourself. Do you, do you want to just write it down and you can put it in an envelope for next time? That's a, that's a really good way to allow them to express themselves that's less threatening because they might be afraid of, I mean, look at us, right? And the things that we've gone through in our childhood, they might be afraid of being rejected or judged for what they're sharing. Remember that when, when we're abused, we think it's our fault that we've done something wrong and it takes us how long to figure out that that's not the case. Well, you can tell somebody that, that all the time, but it takes a long time for them to connect to that belief. And while they're still on fire and still in the abuse, they're not going to, to even though intellectually they might go, yeah, they said it's not my fault. They don't really, believe or understand that necessarily well, we adults don't believe that right i mean so, I, I can't yeah. i mean we both know probably from talking with our clients like no matter what you say logically they acknowledge yep. logically i get it but i still don't can't feel it. accept it's that cognitive dissonance right it's that disconnection when police would ask me when i would run away and they would fish me out of somewhere sometimes under a bed or hiding in someone's closet whatever it was and they would fish me out after they finished telling me how much my mother was worried about me. That was awesome. Super smart, right? Aligning with the parents. That's yeah. that lack of training though, right? Yeah. And that's right. still yeah. going on. Um, 
but then after that, they would ask me what, you know, what I was running from. Maybe they would try to align with me by saying, you know, when I was a kid, like sometimes I had a hard time too. They might try to go, but first of all, they started at a place where they're aligned with my abuser. And then they're asking me a question where if I disclose to them what my mother is doing to me in my little mind, I have to tell them why. And my why is because I'm bad because that's what I believe. So it's almost like telling on myself and mm. maybe now I'm going to be in more trouble. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing um, that you didn't mention, but what I was thinking of, and this is a trigger warning also. Um, so my son's best friend killed himself. He shot and killed himself on the first day of school in 10th grade, oh. but he had endured 10 years of bullying in three different schools. And you know, I, I was uh, with his mother for part of it the, because they were from Poland. And so um, the language was a little bit of an issue, even though her English was better than she thought. But we went to the principal. We went to the vice principal. We reported what was happening with the bullying in three different schools. They would sit there and take notes and it would go into a file and nothing ever happened. And then he did it. And it was like, how could this have happened? Yeah. How could it have, but, but I really feel like his name was Bart, that he learned that telling people it did, did nothing. Yep. So, so it was almost like learned helpless, helplessness. And this was a kid who was like six foot three. We always called him like a gentle giant. He wouldn't fight back because maybe he thought he was going to get in trouble or it was just his nature. But he, I think he learned that no matter who he ever told, it went nowhere. So and he felt way, like there was no other yeah. way. And in a way, he wasn't wrong. I mean, look at these kids in the middle of these um, shared parenting situations. We know it's not co-parenting. And they're crying hysterically in the car, and they don't want to go to the other parent's house because of the abuse. And they're telling, and they're still being made to go. So they're not wrong. Right. You right. Know? So it's almost like, what's the point of telling all these people when they can't save me? And if I tell, it's going to be on the record and my other parents going to know. And now, like you said, I'm going to get really yeah. punished. So yeah, it's, it's better not to say anything about it. Yeah. Well, that's how, the, how they start to feel. It's how anybody would start to feel, let alone a child, right? Who really, truly, is in a that much more vulnerable and helpless situation. And that's why it's so key for the parent who is the non-abusive parent to get all the tools that they can to provide support for that child in the best way they can until that child comes to an age where they are able to create that boundary. Because there is a point in time, um, I know it varies from state to state or from Canada to the US even, where you know a kid turns 12 or 13 and they do have a say. But that's a lot of years in between, depending when, you know, that that breakup happened, right? Uh, here it's 18 in most states. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In Georgia, it's 14. That's the youngest I know off the top of my head where a child can decide. But it's generally 18. And, uh, you know, their, their voice, they can have a say, maybe 12, a little bit, 14, 16. But, yeah, they're they're stuck. I mean, we have clients whose children are 16 and they are still in the throes of like a terrible custody battle. And the, the kid is driving and they're still forced to, to follow the schedule. Wow. Yeah. Something needs to change there. Yeah. I know. <laughs> How often do you That's say another that? hour. That's another yeah. hour. <laughs> I know. There's our next topic. Yeah. Okay. So you just mentioned tools that parents should have. To um, help people, favorite, you know that. Yeah, let's, let's hear them. Like <laughs> this is what are we need my to favorite know. tool because questions don't give opinion, right? Questions um, support critical thinking, is which is what you want your children to develop. This is where we get into that part, and it's kind of my favorite, if you can't tell. But a lot of times, what will happen in these situations is so. First of all, let's go back to the reason we end up marrying somebody who's abusive a lot of times is because we come from abuse, 
And when we have children, for those parents who don't become abusers, they become the opposite of abusers. So what does that mean? They're the bubble wrap parents. They're the parents who aren't going to let anything hurt their child. They're going to insulate them in every single way possible. They're going to brush over the things that are happening, use distraction techniques and things like that, because they don't want their child to feel any bit of the pain they felt in childhood. Bad. So bad. Because what a child can't feel, a child can't process. And if they they can't process it. They can't have any critical thinking around what is happening to them. It's a much better idea to allow our ch children to have these experiences where you can be there to help them through than it is to kind of brush over it like, no big deal. I know that happened over here, but you're here now and you're safe now. That's, that's not a good thing to do. The best thing you can do, children check in. I say this all the time. Children will make mention of something because they know it's a little bit off, but they don't know why. Or maybe they feel it's a little bit off and they're looking for that validation. So they might say, you know, uh, parent one, because I don't want to go gender because this is not gender specific. Parent one said to them, you know, parent two is kind of a little bit off and they really shouldn't be doing that and da-da-da-da, you know, because that's one of the things that they do to create doubt in the child's mind about the parent who is non-abusive. That's one of the division tactics, right? And the child comes home and says, oh, parent one kind of said this about you. And parent two is going to do one of two things, brush it under the rug, put it aside and, and bubble wrap their child and say, oh, no big deal. That's okay. Or they're going to go on the defensive. <laughs> and in going on the defensive, they're either going to de defend their behavior, which is exactly what parent one is banking on. Or they might actually say, well, parent one really shouldn't be saying that to you and leave it there much better, much better in every situation where this child is checking in. What do you mean by that? How does that make you feel? Those are like your mantra questions, because that opens up the dialogue for, for you to understand actually where that's hitting that child, which is so important. Mm -hmm. It's acknowledging that something is happening. It's going through the elephant in the room rather than putting it, you know, in another cage somewhere, a sight unseen. And it's giving that child an opportunity to actually think about how they feel and process those feelings so that when that behavior comes up again, they can kind of go, hmm, okay, that's not very nice. Parent one is doing something not very nice. It really helps them to be able to process the fact that th these things that are being said aren't their fault. And it also lets them know that parent two is more concerned about their feelings than their own feelings, which is something they are never going to find with parent number one. That, that is amazing. And I'm thinking of what you said about how parent one, their goal is to make parent two defend themselves and why that's so bad. Yeah. Um, I want to hear what you have to say about that because in my head I'm thinking it's just like false accusations. Like what? Yeah. Why well, even when parent two is defending themselves, what they're that that's not ego driven even, right? That's us prioritizing our need to prove that that's not true. It's true. It's a trigger point. It's not our fault that we're having that reaction, but that's not a response, right? That's an old wound and trigger that probably started long before this particular relationship. So immediately they're on the defensive, and who's getting lost in the shuffle? The child. Child's unseen now because we're too busy proving that that's not true. Does that create safety or stability or that child wanting to come and talk to you again? No, because now they know they've upset you and they feel bad about that too. So you just mm -hmm. added to this child's burden because maybe you were triggered, likely you were, and our egos kind of drive us a little bit and get in the way of us seeing what's really going on. So if you feel yourself in a place of, you know, when that child comes to you in the way that you're interacting and having a conversation with them, if you feel yourself going into that place, what that is, is actually you just reacting instead of responding. So what I tell my clients is whenever you're engaging with someone over something that's prickly, take a minute and check in and just say, okay, am I reacting or am I responding? 
If you're reacting, they're in control. If you're responding, you're in control. Love it. I mean, this is a huge thing, as you can imagine, with our clients, because now I'll start leading into another topic, which we've talked about before, the parent one, um, getting the child to reject the other parent. And um, I'll just say that a, a close personal friend of mine had an issue where, well, has an issue where she has been uh, out of contact with her two daughters. They're one just turned 18. So she was worried because of restraining orders and things in the past, but they're, so they're basically adult daughters, but she feels like they aligned with her ex-husband because years ago they actually uh, started a CPS case and made false reports about they they exaggerated like an argument that happened and it really affected her and so years later she still feels so hurt over that situation that she feels like they were so disloyal to her mm. how could they have not defended her to the other parent they know her she's their mother how could this have happened so she's at the point where she's like i don't know like she's heartbroken but she feels like she doesn't she doesn't feel comfortable Comfortable reaching out to them even though at least one of them has definitely in my opinion signaled signaled multiple times that she needs her mother back she wants her mother back in her life but my friend um, is just like in my head I, I, I know things like I understand but I feel like the relationship is destroyed and it's so hard for me to initiate a conversation after everything that's happened some of that, that sounds like she was very triggered by their disloyalty, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, so that's actually not that on them. That's on her to work through what the foundation is that's causing that trigger. Because, yeah, I told her that. You know, because, <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, they're children. And right. they're very, you know, a child is no match for an adult, period. But then they're no match for an adult that they're trying to retain the love of. And remember, narcissists work in this push and pull situation. So if you aren't aligning with the narcissist, you're off the island. And they knew she wouldn't leave the island. Children know. So they had to work overtime to stay in, in that. Oh, it's a she. So I don't know if it was a wife or a husband, but yeah, um, that other parent. She was the wife and, and her ex is the husband. So, so, you know, these kids are working overtime to stay in their dad's good graces and they're not understanding that their dad is lighting the fire. And now the really sad part also is as these girls get older and they start to live life, they're going to carry a lot of guilt for something that's not their fault. They were just children. And I think it sounds to me like she's lost sight of the fact that they were the victims and they were the children in the middle. And it was her job to figure out how to cope with that rather than taking that personally in that way. And I know it's easier said than done, but at the end of the day, if we're the adults on the scene, it's our job to recognize that children are reacting to their environment. So if she wants to reconnect with them and rebuild a relationship with them, she cannot do it from a point of view. It will not work from a point of view that they were disloyal to her because really they're probably feeling like she was disloyal in picking their father. You know, they're probably feeling all of these different things because they didn't ask to be brought into that situation. Yeah. I mean, I've told her, I've said, you know, he's painted, he painted a picture of you a certain way while you were still together. And so he's pushed you out of their lives. And by you staying out of their lives, you're basically proving to them that what he said about you is true, that you're not there for them, that you're their mother, but you're not showing up as their mother. Yeah. And, and, you know, we can talk about it from the outside, yeah. but we know, I know from our clients and so many people that we spoke, this is the most painful thing because it really is, is, a uh, it's grieving. Yeah. They feel like they're grieving and it's worse than death because the child is still alive and the child just won't speak to them. Yeah. And of course, this is different than, you know, your situation with yeah. no contact. This, you know, this, totally is different second, thing. this is the second reason. This is the second largest reason that these relationships end up in no contact is for this reason exactly right here, right? The first reason that adult 
uh, children end up no contact, the biggest reason is as a result of child abuse that continues on to into adulthood, that that parent that abused that child refuses to take ownership, go to therapy, change your behaviors and respect boundaries and build trust. The second biggest reason that adult children end up no contact is exactly for this reason. The ones where there is an ex-spouse that has indoctrinated them in this way. And oftentimes in that situation, there's also a whole narcissistic family system who's backing up that ex because they, they come from that system, right? And then there's that one person, the mama or the dad, who doesn't have that, that, that rally around them. They're standing alone right. on the island. So of course they feel violated. And of course they feel that everybody is being disloyal. And it's very hard for them to understand because they know they didn't abuse their children. Rather, they pass down trauma by connecting in these relationships, right? In these situations, loving at a distance is what I always say is the best policy and giving those children space to kind of grow into adulthood and, and come into their own, but doing that where they know the door is open. And if they walk through that door, it's on her or anyone like her to have gotten enough healing to be able to come to the table without defense, mm. without um, uh, you know blaming it on this, that, or the other, and being willing to acknowledge and validate whatever those children's feelings are rather than going on the defense. Because if you start that way, it's really interesting. When somebody is seen and heard, they'll look for more answers and they'll make connections, the ones that you want them to see. I always tell people showing up as the best version of yourself is going to be the thing that really heals your relationship and just maintaining that consistency. Yeah. So I think part of the situation here, and I know this is the same with many of the people that we work with too, is the kids who have been um, separated, you know, rejecting yeah. the one parent, they live with the other parent. They are financially dependent yeah. Yeah. So on it's that gonna other be a parent. While. It's going to be a while unless they can shift gears with that because they're going to get punished for that relationship. Well, yeah, and that's, that's what she and I talked about is that part of that may be going on too. Yeah. Because when yeah. when they were supposed to see when they tried to see each other a couple times, like he insisted, the ex insisted on driving the the kid there, watching from the part, like watching everything, and the kid knew that they were being watched. And how can they have a relationship with the other parent when when they have to go home to somebody who's watching and certainly will punish? It, so you you mentioned uh, loving at a distance too. Yeah. So to, say what you. We're just about to say, uh, and then let's talk I, a little more about that. What I was going to say to that is if there's any good part about that is his own actions will be his undoing because there will be a point in time where they are no longer under his thumb. And even though she'll have lost some years, when they come back, they'll come back because of these behaviors. They will. This is their normal right now. There's a point where we go out into the world and we go, oh, oh, no, that actually isn't how this is supposed to roll out. And so what he's doing now is actually going to be his undoing. She may not see it right now, she may not feel that way right now, but his control is something that they're ultimately, at least one of them will buck up against. You know, usually there's a golden and with the golden children, sometimes they never break free. Not always, right. but it's harder for them. It's more difficult for them, right? So, right. but this will be his undoing. The fact that he's doing that, he doesn't even know the gift he's handing her. It doesn't feel like that right now, but I can tell you down the road it will be. I think you, you just made a lot of people feel better and more who watch this recording are going to feel <laughs> a lot of comfort from that statement because that's the question we hear all the time is like, when are they going to see it? It feels like they're never going to see what this person really is. Well, and it's hard because time and memories and, and bonds are passing by, right? So, you know, we miss out on things through that process and that's really painful and these things will never be able to be retrieved. So, of course, they feel that way and, of course, there's a lot of frustration and we just have to sometimes accept what we can't alter, right? Which is also that loving at a distance. 
letting that child know, adult child, young child, whatever, I respect your boundaries. I respect that you need space from me right now. And that's okay. I just want you to know that my door is open. I'm here. I love you. And I will always be here. So, so it's almost like leaving messages or sending cards or, I mean, to just yeah. keep reiterating that message, like I'm here when you're ready. Yeah, that's it. I'm here when you're ready and just trying to with kids this age, like what you're talking about, trying to keep a foot in the door. Now, if the child says, listen, I just don't want to hear from you say, okay, well, if there's ever a time that you do, let me know I'm here and making yeah. sure back that boundary period. It's hard, but you know, that's, that's what, that's what uh, I, I don't want to make this like a game, but it is like a game in a way, because for a narcissist, these are game pieces, right? These aren't little human beings. Um, it, it almost um, puts you, you know, ahead of the game by behaving better. It just doesn't feel like it in the moment. And I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th thanks again for like reiterating that to people because they, they need to hear that over and over again and to feel like there is still some hope and, um, there's a woman that we've talked to multiple times, a friend of mine named Dawn Brower, and she, she specializes in secure attachments. And she says that that initial bond that you have with your child in those first few years, that doesn't go away. And that's buried in their memory. So, so even though right now through, say, adolescence and between teens, like early 20s, like that's still there as a basis. You know, yeah. and so well, there's still I mean, if no trauma hope. lives in the body, why wouldn't attachment live in our body, right? So interesting. Yeah, what a great point. Yeah, I'm going to remember to tell people that. That's that's such a great point. Um, okay, I wanted to talk. I know we got to keep an eye on the time because you're going to be working right after this. Continuing <laughs> yeah, I have to work. Therapy for for one of my groups tonight. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So keep keep me on on task, but. Um, my alarm is going to go off because I know better than to depend on my eyes right now. I know. <laughs> oh, and I can't see the time on my phone, so I was like looking at the stove behind my back. Okay, but, but so we were talking about why kids don't talk to people who are supposedly going to be able to help them. And um, one thing you didn't mention, but I wonder about that I saw from my ex's family dynamic was uh, there was a child of a narcissistic parent. And as he it was a boy, and as he was growing up, even as a toddler, when I would or somebody would ask him a question, his mother would answer for him. Oof. So you couldn't have like a convert, like you couldn't, anytime we asked his opinion or anything, he wasn't able to answer. And as he grew up, he just became silent. And so even asking his opinion on things, like anything, you know, the most mindless things he wouldn't talk he would do single word answers and just shut down he was one of those kids that had his head buried in the phone that one of the most antisocial people and i always wondered um if it's because part of was he he wasn't allowed to ever express himself yeah is that, well, is that another reason why you think kids might not talk to other adults because the adults that they grew up with or one adult just speaks for them. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you don't learn how to articulate an opinion when you're a child, how do you learn how to articulate an opinion or your feelings, right? If, if that was taken away, your conditioning is to be quiet because it sends a message that you're not actually allowed to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any advice from like another person uh, you know, like another parent or another family member, how can they get a kid to start talking about anything? Not not to get into their, you know, intimate thoughts, but just to start having conversations. You know, it, kids who've been raised like, like that with no voice. It, it, it might be a question of, back to questions, it might be a question of asking them, so you really don't have an opinion? You, you don't know if you like this or you don't like this? Yes, no. Well, what does that mean? Go back to the what does that mean? Because what does that mean makes somebody have to give something more than a yes or no answer. Open-ended questions, not questions that can be answered with a this or a that or a yes or a no is also going to be helpful. And then when they do answer, having some sort of positive reaction to their sharing 
because likely in that situation, when they do share their opinion, they might be being berated in some way or pushed down or judged in some way. So they also expect to be rejected when they speak. So, yeah. Like, you know, it, it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, ringing the bell in Pavlov's dog, right? They're conditioned. That's what all of this stuff does is it creates conditioning, which means it's yeah, I mean, unlearned. Yeah. So I was going to say, like, based on either your own experience or people that you work with, do you notice that um, kids of narcissistic parents tend to, to shut, like, it's almost like they don't even know how they feel. They won't discuss their their feelings about anything they don't is that common or is that just something that's I super see? common because think about this um children who are being abused learn to read the room and so their first job when they enter a room is to see what everybody else's emotions are doing what all the moving pieces are so what does that mean they're not checking in with how they feel about being in that room they're checking in with that room and then they're checking their own behavior to make sure that they can be safe in that room so they don't really develop the the ability to, to get in touch with their own feelings like they might know okay i feel angry but they push that down because they're not allowed to feel angry because if they're angry they're in trouble they might know they feel a little sad but they push that down because if they express that, they might get in trouble for that. So they go back to the first part of what I just said, and that is looking at the adults in the room, particularly their abuser, and looking at their body language, how they're, there's a silent language going on there at all times. These kids are aware of their body language. They're aware of how their face looks, of whether or not they're allowed to make eye contact or speak like what you were talking about. They're constantly monitoring their environment which doesn't leave a whole lot of room for them to be processing their feelings that they're not allowed to have. What are some of the, I don't know if you know this, but I think you might, like what are some of the physical manifestations of people, like say children who grow up in an environment like that where they are not in touch with their own emotions? Um, I, I would say the, the biggest one is you'll see somebody who's just checked out you know, or somebody who maybe you know them well, and they'll be very chatty with you, and they're very comfortable, and then they get in a room, and they're like this. That's one of the things that you'll see in their in their body language. All of a sudden, somebody that you don't know to be shy is very shy, because, yeah. and, and they might appear cool, cold. They might appear like they don't care about what's going on in the room, when in reality, they're in some way disassociating because it's too much stimulation for them because they're afraid of being judged. They're, they're afraid someone's gonna reject them or not like them. That is a constant fear for somebody who grows up in a narcissistic family system. It's, it's, it, and the self-reliance that's grown through that to be very um, reliant on your own entertainment, on your own thought process, insulating yourself from your environment is a very big byproduct of that kind of abuse. And so those are also the adults that cannot ask for help, cannot accept kindness or compliments or praise or any of those things, because that's foreign to them. And if anything good is going on, they're sure that's where the trauma lives in their body that something bad is going to follow because that's their life experience throughout their whole childhood and that just doesn't get turned off that's a lot of work to undo that yeah so um oh gosh there's so many things going on in my head and i'm thinking that this comes up all yeah. the time with We're our clients not and, allowed to have needs. yeah like not wanting to ask for help but especially what you just said about when things are good that they get scared and we just had a conversation this past Sunday. A couple of people in our group were saying, that my ex is being really nice. I know something bad is going to happen. I'm terrified because they're being nice. And they're I mean, they have experience. And the worst part is it's not wrong. Yeah. So it's important to focus on, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen and how am I going to handle it? And then right. that gets released. And yeah. now be where you are. That's yeah. That's the only way because they're not wrong. So, you know, they, they have to be aware of that. They have to be aware that there is going to be a flip side. So what is the worst case scenario? Okay, I'll deal with that when that comes. At least let me be where I am now and take this for whatever it's worth right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how many minutes do we have, Marnie? 
I think it says 45, it's at 645, so we're okay. Okay, all right, so let's talk a little bit about trauma therapy and EMDR. And one of the things that um, came up like a few weeks ago that I thought, I asked the question, is there a way to deal with trauma without talking about it? And I got various answers. And so I wanted to know what you thought about it. Is there a way to actually work through trauma without talk therapy? Um, so EMDR is a form of talk therapy. So, um, I, and I guess, I, and I don't know a lot about somatic therapy and release, but I think that is a form of therapy where there isn't so much talk involved. I haven't experienced it myself, but I kind of feel like by definition, maybe that would be the way. Um, okay, but, well, tell us about EMDR. That's, I mean, that's what you know a lot about. So e EMDR, um, I like to call it a bit of a brain trick trick and and just to head it off at the past it's nothing like hypnosis it's nothing like um being put into kind of a trance state or anything like that people who i have um done emdr with are are completely present and in control of of what wherever we're going to go um, the way that emdr works is um I'll, I'll give a, an example let's say you went through uh, a traumatic event and you know what happens when we're experiencing something that's traumatic we go into survival right and the reason for that is because let's say this part of our brain right here is reacting to the to the event that's that's occurring in that moment and then this part of the brain is the part that reasons it out remember i talked about response and reaction right this is reaction this is response sometimes so much trauma is occurring it never makes it to this part of the brain so you don't work it out you don't critically think about it you don't put it in context so like when you look at an adult survivor of, of abuse who says you know i am worthless i'm not worth anything it's because in this part of their brain there's all this stuff they're telling them that telling them that what was done to them was their fault they can't see that they were a little child because it's stuck over here and this part of their brain isn't going back and saying but you were only four years old the connection isn't happening so there's a pathway, right, where this information gets over here. When the tra tra trauma stuff doesn't get over here, it gets backed up, it gets bigger, it gets worse, which is why if you don't do any sort of therapy, you're triggered by a lot of different things because you've not worked out what creates those triggers. So wait, Marty, you're saying it gets worse. Yeah. It's not just like it stays bad, it gets worse. It, it gets you worse don't deal because with it. we also become, um, as we're trying to go through life and improve our life, and things are happening and we're self-sabotaging, we're creating chaos for ourselves because we haven't dealt with these things that have happened, we create an adult life that feels very much like that life. And now it's really our fault, right? Now we're really bad people. So it does have a more negative and heavier impact on our self-esteem. And also trauma survivors from childhood have a delayed kind of development in one way or another. Like for example, um, not going to university with their peers and graduating at the same time or getting married really young and having babies really young so you're not doing things on par with your peers because they didn't su survive trauma. Um, maybe entering the workplace later on or, or finding your career later on. There, there are things that make us feel different because we're different. Mm. And we don't understand that all roads lead back to this stuff that didn't get dealt with. When we're doing an EMDR therapy, um, it has a bilateral stimulation, and I'll explain it in a minute. A client will come to me and say, I feel worthless. That's their current state. I feel like damaged goods. Damaged goods would be the words that I heard the most in my life. Okay, that's where you feel right now. What do you want to feel? I want to feel worthwhile. I want to feel like I'm allowed to take up space. Okay, what is your first recollection of a feeling or a memory or a point in time where you realized that there was something wrong with you, that you were damaged goods? Oh, when I was five years old, this, that, or the other. Or I don't have a memory, but I think it was around this age, but I don't remember anything. And that's okay if we have a feeling. Okay, well, let's go back in there and let's start thinking about that a little bit. And while that person is thinking about whatever that event was, I am doing this and they're focusing on my fingers. They're not speaking. And just they're, with your fingers. Just with my fingers. No fancy 
No fat Nothing. machines. And some people have a light machine. Some people use a sound technique. Some people use tapping. I'm working on Zoom. Even when I've worked in person, um, I've only worked with tapping once. And the client, as it turned out, wanted to go back to this because they liked it better. When this is happening and you are accessing one of these memories or moments in time that you have been really fighting not to go back into or that you go into and it's just in a circle in a loop, you can't get it processed, you're ruminating on it. This is creating a situation where your brain can't fight itself. And when your brain can't fight itself, your brain starts processing things differently. And then lo and behold, what's over here starts making it over here. Amazing. And within every session, I see the needle move, what, whatever it is, I see the needle move because this is done in kind of like a series of, I don't know, 18, maybe um, 45 second to one minute, like um, moments, one minute moments. And yes. as this is being done, then we're checking in and I'm kind of using a little bit of guiding. Like I might say, okay, let's stay where you are. Or if they're having a difficulty connecting, I might say, okay, let's find somewhere else that's easier to connect. And one of the ways that I also work with this is having them go back and do some inner child work at the same time. And it gives an, an incredible release. I have a client who lives in fear, like her childhood off the charts. And I did one session with her. We do one session EMDR, then we do talk, then we do EMDR, then we do talk different people you know have different needs i hadn't seen her all weekend and i asked her how she was feeling after the emdr and she she said well i was tired and which is to be expected you process a lot of stuff and i said and what about the fear factor and she goes you know i took a shower for the first time and i didn't even think about anything because that was one of her fears and she goes i didn't even actually realize it until you just said what you said until you asked the question there's a name of one of her perpetrators that she could never say before. Now she can say that name freely. So it's because your brain starts working it out. And she, for the first time, saw herself as a little child and went, oh, my God, it actually wasn't my fault. And I'm just, she's right now in a space of, I'm just really enjoying loving that little child right now and letting them know I'm here. And that's all on her right that's that's what she got out of the session which is not unusual so I'm, can you tell i love it yeah <laughs> and i almost feel I'm like gonna... it's a magic trick but it's not <laughs> yeah my well my partner chris did it like once or twice and he was amazed and he's not woo woo not at all not that i know i was gonna say me neither but i mean he was just like this made such a difference yeah huge so when you say you see progress like i know because i've seen it yeah. Like the cue, just one session sometimes can make such a difference. Yeah. Because, because you go back to one particular memory and like you said, it does get worked out and then it's, it's deadened. It's like all that, like where you, you don't know what it is, but it, you, just that trauma and fear. And like whenever you go near something and you get like this discomfort, yeah. um, it's gone. It's completely gone. It, it, it's kind of a closure, right? It's yeah. the part of your brain that's logical has had the opportunity to think it through now. So you're not feeling it anymore. You know, you're, you're really processing and releasing it. So you're no longer ruminating over it, over the conversations you couldn't have had, over the power that you couldn't take, over the helplessness that you felt. Because when you, when you can't view yourself as a victim, which is a lot of time uh, a thing a survivor has a problem looking at themselves as a victim because then we see ourselves as being weak but we were a victim but we were vulnerable and when you can connect and look and go oh my god that's actually true and that doesn't mean i'm a bad person that was them that were bad people that's life-changing stuff right there yeah yeah and i love that word ruminating i'm thinking of a cow chewing its cud but that's what we do. We do. That's the perfect word is, is just ruminating. I always think of it as cycling. Yeah. Like so that my brain cycling around and uh yeah. in the middle of the night, you know. This ends a lot awful. of that. Yeah. Yeah. I see a yeah. lot of this ending with that. So it's just uh like it's it's definitely my favorite form of therapy. Yeah. Well, it sounds fantastic. I mean I haven't done it, but I know Chris just wrote that the just one session was incredible, but yeah, it's so interesting. Like sometimes we don't we don't really know. I mean, we know how it works with the brain, but 
whatever works works yes. so excellent. the first time so i had like practice clients right so in the first time i did it like i don't know how it's going to turn out I'm watching, like I'm doing it. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, you know, getting my clinical time in and whatever, and I'm doing it. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> and it's always <laughs> at the same, now I know, right? But it's, yeah. it's always at the same rhythm and the same point, the same number of doing these. I don't tell them what the numbers are or anything like that because I don't want any power or suggestion, but it, it is an absolute science. So it's not woo woo actually, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it's amazing. Okay, so Marnie, I know we're super close with time. Yeah. What? Uh, why don't you tell people how they could find you? So, um, other than on here, you can always DM me through Instagram because this is an easy way to find me. You can also find me on MarnieSpeaks.com. So, just how that sounds, and you can see the spelling of my name: M A R N I E. Um, and the link in my bio on my Instagram has all of my information. So if you want information about group therapy, if you want one-on-one -on -one sessions, whatever it is, you can always email me through there. Um, and of course, I'm on TikTok, which is my main platform. And I you have over, over 800 videos <laughs> at this point. And I'm also on YouTube. So I'm working on expanding my, my YouTube more. So if you're not a TikTok person, you will find the same content on TikTok, but on YouTube, plus some additional um, uh, content that isn't over on TikTok because of the length of time. Yeah, well, I thank you so much. It's always as always, I yeah. hope this won't be our last. It will not. I'm sure it will. Good. Good. But again, like I know just what you've spoken about today is going to offer so much comfort. So thank, thank you. you. I really morning. appreciate you. Okay, I'm going to click off because I have group. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Been There Got Out podcast. Please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. And you can find us easily on all major social media, but especially Instagram and YouTube. If you think we might be able to help you with your own situation, just visit beenthergotout.com and click the button to schedule a complimentary discovery call. Thanks again, and see you next time.